it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Hi there, you're listening to The Evening Glass on One Sensational Shot. Uh, my name's Luke Littleboy, joined by Fletcher Walton. Fletcher, this week um, I've actually had a, a little bit of time off, so Lex and I have managed to get to the cinema once or twice. A um, couple of films we've caught, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Right, tell me, but tell I did, me. I haven't prepped any notes for Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, because I didn't think that that was one you'd be interested in. I've The other one I saw was Incredibles 2. But in terms of Mamma Mia, did you see the first one? Is that something that you're you're at all, at all intrigued by? I don't think I've ever even spoken to you about the ABBA back catalogue, have I? <laughs> no, um, I haven't seen Mamma Mia. What made me register a level of enthusiasm for Mamma Mia 2 is that Cher's in it. And I do genuinely like Cher. I'm not much into her music, but she is a showbiz survivor. She's an entertainment survivor. 50 years of share <laughs> we've had that long it's quite it's quite cool in the in the movie if you've seen the trailers mum here here we go again you've kind of seen most of share in the picture right. uh she, she comes in at the 11th hour on the helicopter grandma you weren't invited <sighs> yeah, that's the best kind of party little girl <laughs> uh, they talk about her in hushed whispers as the old battle axe grandmother that no one likes and shows no love and um, what's quite funny, you talk about being a, a pop star survivor or whatever. Uh, she, she's spoken about how, oh, grandma, you know, she's never come out of Vegas for 30 years or whatever. She's been in Vegas. So it's in the kind film, of self-referential. She's a singer, right? Yeah. Um, right. She's obviously a Vegas singer. Yeah. And um, I suppose it's kind of the only moment of uh, within the within the Mamma Mia canon where they decide to explain why why the daughters and the granddaughter may then be singing because obviously there's there's some kind of thread there that's been inherited uh but it it's a, it's great it had hold, me grinning that, from, hold on it, but if they do that right surely it takes it out of the musical milieu and pitches it as a film in which the, the characters aren't singing because it's a musical but because they like to sing that makes it even more odd surely <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought of you that. You may as well have um, you may as well say with a, a history of mental illness leaping bounding <laughs> through our family and because of that we just <laughs> sing all of our feelings. It w- one of the odd things to me and I did ask this to Lex. I said in the Mamma Mia universe does the band ABBA exist? Did they did yeah. they ever exist? Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. and Lex assured me that she doesn't think that they did. Uh and and all of the songs are, are kind of written by um well, in the first one, Meryl Streep's character, um, she was in a band in the 70s with her school friends or college friends, and they they were singing these songs. So, therefore, it's probably kind of their their band who, who wrote a lot of these songs right. in that universe. That's never explicit or explained, but I suppose if you put those those particular spectacles on, that's the way you could interpret it, if you, if you, if you know what I mean. I always um, look out for that in a film... When a picture has an analogue of a real life person, so Boogie Nights, for instance, where 
Marky Mark is basically playing John Holmes, but then within the Boogie Nights universe explicitly references Holmes, which mm. creates uh, the Matrix folds in on itself. It's not quite that bad, but it does. It always makes you pause. Walls are yeah, broken down, and, and well, and and Wolf Castle's another example. He's kind of yeah, a, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger um, alike, but then I think in the Simpsons movie, isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger the president? Yeah, it screws it right around. And even while watching, you think, no, that can't be because they don't have Arnie. They have Rainier Wolfcastle. And mm. in Last Action Hero, I think Stallone plays all of Arnie's roles in Jack Slater's universe. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Arnold Braunschweiger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets complicated. But honestly, um, Cher's basically my first crush before I even knew what a oh, crush really? was. Her and Winona Ryder, because I watched, uh, I've thought about this often over the last 20 years. As a child, one of my favourite films was Mermaids. So I only saw it three or four times, but still, it's always made me consider whether my parents, you know, in the back room are saying, "Uh, he's watching Mermaids again. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We just might need to adjust our expectations of uh, where this one's going with uh, marriage. And, not that there's anything wrong with that, marriage and children. And not that there's anything, you know. I've had that um, attraction towards basically ball-busting strong women like Cher. Christine Baranski is another good example. She's in it, isn't she? She's in Mamma Mia. Yeah, she's the sassy, uh, sassy older lady. Yeah, she's yeah you're right. Along with, Ju- along with Julie Walters, they're, yeah. they're, the, they're the, um, the, the friends. I suppose the best way to explain... Christine Bransky to a modern audience, to like to a young person would be if you think it's Jessica Walter from Arrested Development, it's probably actually Christine Bransky. But I first came across <laughs> her in the TV show Sybil, and again, yeah. like as a twelve, thirteen-year-old, I didn't really know what attraction was necessarily, but I thought, yeah, she's awesome because she's telling them off. And I had the same thing yeah. with Cher. So I, I've always, uh, yeah. I've always had, I've always accepted Cher in whatever form she's taken because I, I rate that she's the poor daughter of Armenian immigrants and reinvented herself in that Bob Dylan kind of way from Robert Zimmerman into Bob Dylan and Cheryl Sarkeesian into just Cher and has been an entertainment juggernaut for 50 odd years, hopelessly out of fashion at times, but then kind of came together in the 80s. Mask is a good one of hers and Suspect. She's a decent actress. It's a shame, as you say, it's a a bit of a shame this is only a cameo because if she was in it longer, I don't know if she's on a Zimmer frame, she seemed all right on Graham Norton. But if she was in it longer, I'd be more likely to go and see it because she can actually sing. Unlike, well, basically all of them. It's as though they brought in Bond to make the rest of them look better. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. And when she does sing her number, which you may have even heard on the radio, it, it's been released as a single, I think, from the soundtrack. She sings a cover of Fernando. And it's the musical highlight of the whole film. Yeah. Like as soon as she opens her mouth, you you go, oh yeah, that's this is what actual singing is. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten because you you spent the last ninety minutes yeah. <laughs> in the pre, in the presence of essentially like sixth form drama yeah. school level singers. It's amateur, uh, hour, isn't it? it? It is very much amateur. Hour. I mean, all of them. And like when I was watching it, Lily James, I thought was decent. She's mesmerizing. She's gorgeous. You know, there's a moment where they film her in slow motion, uh, picking oranges, and I thought, you know what, you can just set a camera up and uh, for Lily James, and then just watch her go. This is fantastic, and she's hitting some notes, she's singing, and then I heard on the radio one of her tunes, um, and suddenly hearing her sing in isolation just on the radio, I realised 
no, that is not doing it for me. This is this is that I have no need to listen to this. So taken out of the musical context, like all of that stuff was uh, superfluous to mm. requirements. Really, you know, it's not it, it's not vital uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But sure as eggs are eggs, as soon as Cher starts singing Fernando, that is like that's verging on as good as the original, if not has its at least has a life of its own and uh you're right that's that's actual talent that's someone who's actually had a career in entertainment you know yeah yeah um so so that was that was good to see she was she was fantastic and she's from the from the 60s mm. you know she's one of the last the last pop stars really the last true the last true pop stars and she know, wasn't from, from that era she wasn't cool either because her and sunny bono didn't smoke dope they were quite yeah. clear that although they there were aspects of the counterculture with which they engaged and supported. At the same time, they were a married couple that were relatively straight, which didn't go down well. So they came, and then by the time they came back in the mid seventies, and uh, with their show, and were doing jokes about their marital breakup and divorce, that was too edgy. So they went from being far too mild to uh, and generating an audience, nevertheless, through that. Five, six years later, that same audience is repelled when Sonny and Cher are finally catching up to the times. Everything was kicking mm. off in the 70s. Um, my thinking is always based around that, that the 70s was the time when the great art was. I think that the 60s was a necessary corrective and a time of liberation, although I've always tremendous reservation around it because I think it liberated men to do exactly as they pleased not so much for women i mean <laughs> yeah the pill just meant that men could have as much sex as they wanted with women and women because hey baby you can't get pregnant i don't think that it uh it's still taken 50 years to get as far as we have basically what i'm saying yeah. is that the, the liberation and the civil rights actions of the 60s uh they were welcome but they were enacted upon a culture that just wasn't ready in a way, wasn't mm. sophisticated enough, especially in America, to have that level of liberation. But Cher got through all of that, and she's weathered it all. And her mother is still alive. And I had to check that. I heard it, I think, again, I, I think it was on Graham Norton. She mentioned her mum, and I thought, <laughs> holy shit, she must be an old bird. Because Cher's in her 70s, and it's a bit like with um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood's mother, she will have gone in her late 90s. I do like that you're in the same position that I am now, Fletch, where... I used to sit and watch the Graham Norton show when we lived together, and you, you couldn't stand to watch any of that drivel. But now that you're in domesticated bliss, as am I, uh, this is more the source of your pop culture uh, news, is the latest episode of Graham Norton. So I'm enjoying I'm enjoying some of your sentences ending with, yeah, 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 I think I saw that in Graham Norton. It almost feels <laughs> cruel to remind you that it, uh, I was doing it as part of my gig, so... I don't know what's worse, though, being at work until quarter past midnight and you get paid to subtitle Graham Norton or uh, watching it at home. At least when you're done with it, you've already had a bottle of wine and two cans and you can just fall asleep. Whereas I've got to make my notes, um, update the files, play a game of pool on my own at midnight and then trot on home. It passed me by. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Mamma Mia, to an extent, it was a genuine phenomenon. I don't want to sound like a talking head from I, I Love 2008. It's astonishing how well it did when it came out. It's in the top 10 UK box office of all time. Yeah. There's a few bonds above it, but it's still ranked ninth as the biggest picture at the UK box office ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't... That, that doesn't surprise me whatsoever. And you've got to just remember the musical's been at the West End since, mm. what, 98? Yeah, 90, yeah, 98, 99, yeah. 
Mm. People love so there you ABBA. Go. I love ABBA as well. I remember ABBA Gold coming out. That was what revitalised it. Um, Erasure's ABBA-esque EP came out around in the same year and around the same time as ABBA Gold, which rehabilitated yeah. them. They'd been gone for eight to ten years, They and 92, 93 was a good 15 years past their heyday. In America, mm. the uh, Disco Sucks backlash had robbed them of any... Uh, credibility but mm. we got Abba Gold beginning of the 90s 92, 93 and those tracks are undeniable Dancing Queen is an obvious one but when I listen to that there's so much I, I, I fill in the spaces in the uh, sonic environment I suppose it needs more <laughs> it's as though I put on a kind of Kevin Shields loop pedal there yeah, but they're, they're solid. Yeah, great melodies, really good melodies, and um, just cracking pop tunes. This one opens with um, "I Kiss the Teacher," which I thought in this environment, is in this current climate, was an odd one to open the movie with. <laughs> a whole musical number about kissing the teacher. <laughs> Wasn't I kissed a Weinstein at least? You know, I kissed a Hollywood <laughs> producer, and now and I'm... I liked it. Now I'm on Twitter excoriating his behaviour. <laughs> it was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert as well, and Muriel's Wedding. Oh, yeah. It brought them yeah, right yeah, back yeah. into public consciousness by the time of 95, 96. And I suppose then that's why they got the jukebox musical out of it by the end of the decade. And I do remember the uh, poster on, along with Buddy and Miss Saigon, the poster was on the buses, on the back end mm. of the buses, the old buses, when I would go to football in the late 90s, we'd roll into mm. Liverpool Street and instead of getting the tube my uncle would always pick us up. I was those were those were lovely times, even though it made no sense because we'd spend I think we'd drive for sixty minutes, even though on the tube it would have been maybe forty five. But mm. listening to Catatonia. <laughs> no, I'm I'm the, just trying to think I'm trying to get as nineties as I can. The, the cardigans. Well the particular DJ is what I was talking about, but I do remember a specific track we listened to. It was something by Fun Loving Criminals, Ladi Ladi, Free John Gardi. King of New York, yeah. he's the king of New York. There's also a, a lyric which was, "We all bleed red, even racist motherfuckers." <laughs> which, when you're 14, <laughs> is a real cool thing to hear. He was good. Love Unlimited. Ah, I was watching Banachek. Anyway, Mamma Mia. So you had some fun with that. I did have some fun. I was grinning from ear to ear throughout. Yeah. Um, it does have a little bit of sequelitis. For example, it spends the first sort of five, ten minutes undoing a lot of the happy ending from the first one, which I cannot stand in a sequel. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I always think you should sort of think, okay, how do I progress these characters? You know, how, what, what are these characters' challenges next? And then go from there. But this one does... I mean, it could be because certain people didn't want to be in it or, or, or only wanted a cameo, whatever it might be. But it, it did spend a few minutes at the beginning undoing the happy ending from the first one, which is something I just cannot stand. Mm. Long-time listeners will know I would never understand why in Jurassic Park 3, Sam Neill and Laura Dern are not together as a couple. It makes no sense to me whatsoever and uh, rubbishes the whole point and purpose of the first film. And, uh, and and with Mamma Mia, here we go again. I did feel myself feeling quite melancholy and sad that the, the, the happily ever after ending was, wasn't quite there the way I obviously thought it had been but of course i appreciate you have to set up drama again but you can't argue like you said abba gold you can't argue with the um the songs themselves and yes a lot of the stuff here feels like the first term at drama school people trying to sing sing these things and just about carry a tune and when Cher comes in at toward the end she makes that abundantly clear 
how amateurish uh, the, the preceding 90 minutes have maybe been. Mm. But it's... Lex summed it up quite well when we were coming out. She said, there's a vibe to Mamma Mia. And I think she's right. And it's very easy to be a bit condescending about feel good. You know, that's a feel good film. But I don't think there's anything... Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I truly don't believe in guilty pleasures. People, When people say, oh, so-and-so is my guilty pleasure album or whatever, I always think, no, if you like it, you like it. And you should wear that badge with some degree of pride and at least mm. be you know be a man about it yeah. <laughs> like own, own up to own up to it don't try and talk around it yeah. so anyway I, I didn't i didn't prepare any notes from me yet it was just to say that it, it was a good old laugh but i did see the incredibles too and that's a film that fletch if you can believe this i've we've been waiting 14 years for a follow-up to brad bird's the mm. incredibles and th- that first one i think is maybe my favorite brad bird film um iron giant is is really decent and and, and strong but i i love that incredibles film and of course tom cruise funnily enough we've got the new, new mission impossible out now but tom cruise hired him to do mission impossible 4 is that rogue nation or is no that's the it's ghost protocol mm. isn't it so off the off the strength of the first incredibles um i always think it's it's remarkable that tom cruise <laughs> just thought yeah i'm gonna get that guy to do the next mission yeah and um I think JJ just sent him a text, didn't he, and said, uh, "Look, get involved. We're gonna we're gonna do another Mission Impossible," and that was that was then his big leap into into live action. But I mean, if anyone hasn't seen the first Incredibles, it's it's one of the best superhero films uh, ever. Just, and it was just before that big boom because it was what two thousand four, I think. We'd had X Men. Uh, the first one, hadn't we? There'd been one or two of films, but it was just before we really got the complete barrage of superhero films. And I still think it, it holds up as one of, one of the best ones. Um, obviously, it was dealing with a family dynamic, a dad who's suffering from mid- a midlife crisis, public opinion turning against superheroes, which is very, very Alan Moore Watchmen. Um, and... You know the, the the bad guy is a kind of in the first one is that spurned former sidekick or or, or didn't even get to become a sidekick who uh, whose fan planet boy. was to that's, exactly that's a fanboy yeah the most evil man in the world is a nerd that's a really good <laughs> way of putting Twitter it twat. and it deals with issues of but again like predating Twitter I think you know but um it deals with issues of you know his mega plan is to make give everyone superpowers um and it deals with that idea of if everyone's special uh you know how is anyone special you know if any if anyone's as incredible as each other how how, how do people and it, and it was quite interesting really i think um it it brought a lot of criticism from both the left and the right which i always think is um really satisfactory to me like when the bbc you can go into any waterstones and um there's there's right-wing books saying that the BBC are the worst organisation ever, and there's left-wing books saying the same thing. Mm. And uh, there may be elements of truth on both sides, but I think, well, there's something in there then. They've, they've done something interesting. They've said something interesting if, if, if both people are pissed off with them. So uh, anyway, Brad Bird is obviously back for this one as well, writing and directing. Did you ever see Tomorrowland, which I think was the one he did before this with George Clooney? No, that goes into the same bucket as... John Carter from Mars by Andrew Stanton, mm. who is Pixar too. It, it does. They, it absolutely uh, does. Un, it un, wasn't very good. Yeah, not necessarily bad, but underperformed, overlooked, 
um, arrived with muted fanfare and departed just as quietly. And I haven't caught either of them. They're, they're the sort of film that, because I haven't seen them at the cinema, I feel no need to catch them on television because I'm sure... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw Tomorrowland on TV and John Carter as well. And I think you're right. In both instances, it was it was really bland. And I think... I should have probably seen them at the movies to get any to get anything out of it whatsoever, but um, it's good to see him coming, you know, come out swinging for Incredibles two. I do think it's it's better than the first one, as as great as the first one was, or at least it's equal. And I think along with, for, for my money, the superhero films, best superhero films of all time is Richard Donner's Superman, Sam Raimi's Spider Man two, and of course the Dark Knight. That's really the benchmark of what superhero films ca- can be. And um, I think this is up, up there with them. Uh, and it picks up, which is kind of fun, immediately from the end of the first film. So obviously 14 years may have gone by, but the family certainly uh, haven't aged a day. Uh, they're fighting the, the baddie that is kind of teased right at the end of the first film. The and Underminer. The Underminer. You well remembered. Yeah, when uh... was the last time you saw the first Incredibles? Oh, just the once, I think, at the cinema. But it's uh, I think, it's Ratzenberg. Do you think it? the Underminer is a, just a fantastic name for <laughs> yeah, a bad yeah. guy whose <laughs> whose theme is being underground? The Underminer. Um, is he, is he again this... played by Ratzenberger? Yeah, he is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he is. I won't go into the whole plot because obviously it will spoil it for anyone who wants to see it. And it is it is fun. It's a bit predictable, but it's it is fun to watch it all unfold in front of your eyes. Um, but they're fighting the Underminer with Ratzenberger doing the voice, and the. So the same government forces from the first film shut them down because superheroes are still illegal, technically. And uh, we're then introduced to a character played by um, Bob Odenkirk, one of your favourites. Oh, far out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Is he a and functionary? He's, he, some kind of Mandarin? He's someone that you kind of suspect throughout the film, but but he, he's a decent chap. He, he He's basically a Steve Jobs character, oh. which I thought was quite fun because there is a Pixar connection there, of course, the, the former owner of Pixar, Mr. Steve Jobs. But he's kind of this tech guru he's very rich owns a big tech empire he doesn't do the inventing though it's his sister who's the genius behind the genius as it were does the inventing he's the salesman he gets up the front and sells it and uh his sister's played by um Catherine Keener and all right and she's decent she's really great throughout you know and the animation has come on such a long way you know these are all human characters the First Incredibles film was the first Pixar film to have uh, all human characters, you know, not toys or insects or yeah. whatever, fish, you know, whatever it was. It was all humans. And the the animation, you don't almost think of these as stylized characters. You know, it's um, you can almost see Catherine Keener in there a little bit, and, and she's great. The, the voice take is great. And they kind of have this deal with the Incredibles and Samuel Jackson's character as well, that they're going to undertake a program to slowly reintroduce, reintroduce superheroes back to the public. So there's, there's an element of PR spin, uh, and they've got this tech which is going to have on body cameras for the superheroes because this is really interesting this is what bob odenkirk says the problem is the public's perception of you the media show you walking away from all of this collateral damage and they uh, politicians can then easily spin the fact that you've uh, ruined the city and caused all this damage but if people's perceptions can change and actually see the good work that you're doing um 
that you know people people may then turn around their opinion of you and i think what's interesting about that is there's a there's a clear commentary on how news is packaged up to us I've, i'll stop short of saying fake news but there's clearly an issue here about how people's perceptions change depend depending on what facts and i use inverted commas with facts uh are presented to them on the news within the media um and there's a lot of themes, much like the first one, there's, there's a lot of themes in here that are a little bit heavy-handed at times, but that doesn't necessarily bother me because it's, it's ultimately a genre piece. Um, so I, I, don't, I never have a problem with kind of like on-the-nose uh, speeches in, in kind of genre pictures where, where there's always a bit of a suspension of disbelief anyway. Um, there's a monologue, for example, um, from the baddie in this one who's uh, the screen slaver. Uh, is the baddie, and there's a, a monologue about how the masses have now become consumers, not thinking for themselves whatsoever. We're all slaves to screens. It's not, you know, it's it's obvious there, um, and it's basically kind of a commentary on how the internet, news on the net, has become a new form of virtual reality for everyone. You know, com- people comfort themselves within their bubble, and there's some real debate within the film about the notion of how things are sold to the public and whether the product is in, is actually as important as the sales pitch and will people just buy the buy any old crap if they've been told it's of top quality for example so um so there's loads of interesting themes which i thought were, were fantastic and this one the, the obvious dynamic which flips flips the first movie on its head of course is that mrs incredible elastigirl who's you know my future wife sorry lex my second wife mrs holly hunter but uh it's now elastigirl who's going out and uh working whilst the father mr incredible stays at home to look after the kids get very sleep deprived uh we see him struggling with maths homework for example uh with just as he's about to fall asleep he's got the kid to sleep got the baby to sleep then dash comes in with maths homework and what I really like about it is uh, Dash starts to berate him when he's trying to do this math homework half asleep because it's so late and Dash is saying, no, 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 Dad. Look, that's not how they told us to do it in class. We have to do it this way. And there's just a great line where he says, how, how could they change maths? When did maths change? Which makes me laugh a lot. And I remember my parents saying that when I used to come home and show them how I was doing long division or whatever. Yeah. They, uh, they, they, you know, grossly disagreed with the way I was doing it. Anyway, The Incredibles 2, this is a, a classic piece of Brad Bird animation. Uh, he was great in The Simpsons. <laughs> He's great in The Incredibles 2. Uh, I think in Brad Bird we, we trust, um, despite one or two misfires in the live-action realm. Mission Impossible aside. So yeah, I'd urge you to get down and, and, and see Incredibles 2. It's definitely worth a watch. And like I, like I say, for, for my money... These two films together, especially, I think, are up there with Dark Knight and Richard Donner Superman, Sam Raimi Spider-Man Two. It's uh, it was it was great, really, really good fun. So that's uh, that's Incredibles Two. So you're you're on Virgin now, are you? Yeah. 
couldn't get okay. Sky at our new place. They wouldn't let us put up a dish, which is fine. And I, I haven't missed it. One of the best things that happened to me was uh, we moved end of Feb and mm-hmm. were th- only three weeks, maybe four weeks without television. And that's all that I needed to get out of television completely. I, I never had television on in the background, like moving wallpaper, as so many do. I always Mm -hmm. used television to watch it, or at worst, I'd have music videos on in the background or a film on in the background, but I'd still be engaging with it. So I'd re-watch a lot of big pictures, like Die Hard with a Vengeance, Schindler's List, have it on, dip into it, get to better understand the scenes. Because once you've had something, something's been before you seven or eight times, with that level of repetition, you can break down Mm. scenes. You already know Mm. what is being said, you already know the dialogue, you know the music cues... And then Mm -hmm. it's more about, that's an interesting shot choice, or how is that editing, or the lighting in a certain way? I do that all the time, and Lex cannot understand it. I will just see what film is on, and then I'll put it on, and I'll watch it from halfway through. And uh, she doesn't understand how I do it. But it's it's one of the ways I think I've consumed films forever, you know? Just, Just going... It's almost like reminds me of being a kid and having the VHS putting it on pause and then dipping back into it at some point, you know, and uh, can be a little bit that way. I don't think I've seen all of Kong Skull Island yet. I keep I keep <laughs> watching little ele- yeah. little elements of it. You reviewed it actually on this, uh, this podcast uh, many, many months ago uh, during its theatrical run. Maybe part of the reason why I haven't been chomping at the bit to watch it from the beginning. But yeah, I think I've been watching it here and there. I need to give that one another go. Jordan Volk-Roberts did a picture called Kings of Summer, another example mm-hmm. of the keys to the kingdom being given to a young, ostensibly indie filmmaker with one or maybe two pictures behind them. Luke and I are still unsure about the motivations behind that. Maybe we'll see a sea change now with um, Ronnie Howard being brought on to Solo, perhaps in mm-hmm. future. And J.J. Abrams has come back to the third Star Wars, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, removed from Colin Trevorrow, the, the rumour being that obviously when Carrie passed... The script had to go through a few rewrites, and Colin uh, was having a crack with that. I think with uh, Derek Connolly, his normal writing partner, and uh, they just could not see eye to eye on how to play it out without the Princess Leia character there. So JJ was brought on uh, in a similar way than what he was uh, to what he was on Force Awakens to sort of um, just just to kind of like, okay, we're in a bit of a mess. Bring it home, JJ. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's come up with, you know, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. Will it be a compromise? Will it be, um, you know, just a triumphant victory lap? I don't know. Uh, he's a midwife, it I suppose. It's a delivery, isn't it? And he's a midwife. Um, well, the, the way that we, we were talking about how we consume film and how we get to know particular pictures. Ten years ago, Zodiac came on Sky. There was a, a period on Sky... One after the other, it had David Fincher films for about 18 months, as Sky always does. But it was a, Fincher was in a purple patch, so Zodiac, followed by The Social Network, followed by The Girl with mm-hmm. the Dragon Tattoo. And just before that, or in amongst that, Benjamin Button, which I never got too familiar with. But with that triumvirate, Zodiac, Social Network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, each of those I've seen minimum eight times, some 12 times. And just because they were... On during the day, if uh, the social network was because it was a 15 rated, and Zodiac, mm-hmm. I would it would become silly with Zodiac. It would start at 11 at night, and I'd pause it, <laughs> make dinner, come back, and realise I didn't have time to finish watching it. So I'd save it, what start watching it the next day, and mm-hmm. that's the best way to become familiar with these texts, to become conversant, 
to that level. I've got it with maybe only a dozen films. You know, there's there's a hundred films I know off by heart. Dumb and Dumber, for instance. I, I could <laughs> recite the first 25 minutes of that, but to become conversant with the, the film grammar of it just takes so much longer. But we are getting... Um, I'm heartened that the response to the Jurassic Park articles we've written and the podcast have been positive, and uh, it's clear that listeners and readers understand our position on it and are, are int- as, as interested as we are in figuring out cinema to that level. And not every film needs to be figured out, but I, I, I find that kind of stuff exciting. I never got that far with books. I was a voracious reader as a child and a teenager. And then when we got NTL Cable, November 97, that was that. I, it was cinema for me from then on. And so I learned mm. to dissect and analyse through cinema. Do you ever feel like uh, you missed out on something there, Fletch? That there was another, there's another man that you could have been. Uh, maybe you could have been uh, the the next Hemingway or something. <laughs> the great, the great British novel or something. Do you think that, that was in there? In my more grandiose moments, I presume I would be capable of writing something terrific because I don't have, <laughs> I don't have that baggage that anybody who loves books does. I'd go in, I'd tear oh, into it without even realising that what I did was completely iconoclastic. What's coming up in uh, the uh, maybe the independent cinemas, maybe the multiplexes? Where where can we uh, set up shop and, and what can we be watching? Now I wouldn't deprive listeners of their vitamin C or is it D? Which one do you get from the sun? I think it's D. Luke knows I I get out there yep. on a sun lounger and I lotion up and that's me for the afternoon. I might take a call, Matt McCarthy. I once had a very wonderful summer with American Tabloid by Elroy. I used to pop out to the back garden. I, you felt like you looked like Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> In the graduate, on the back of the inflatable, uh, and that you 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 take your glasses up. I'm just slightly out of focus, looking down with scorn. I had about it's time to go to the pub, Fletcher. <laughs> I had I had all the career drive of Dustin Hoffman in the graduate. It's Mr. Feeney, isn't it, that talks to him? I think it could be actually. When yeah, I think it could be right. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to shout, Michael. I am all around you. Yeah, from Knight Rider. <laughs> um, but as we get into the dog days of the season, if you happen to be in the London area on August 11th at the Regent Street Cinema, you'll find First Reformed, which is the new picture by Paul Schrader. We don't talk about him much, you know. Luke and I don't talk about him that much. You know him as the writer of Taxi Driver by Scorsese and Obsession by De Palma. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, Schrader has been quiet recently, but this apparently, with Ethan Hawke as a pastor is more than a return to form, and it draws on Schrader's Calvinist upbringing. Yeah, I've been hearing about this one, so it's on my list for sure. Uh, It opens on uh, Friday, July 13th, which has passed already. Uh, Because of its nature, I think that it won't be on uh, general release for very long, but you've got that option, August 11th, at the Regent Street Cinema. And what else do we have? Oh, Man Alive, August 8th. Again at the Regent Street, a double bill of the Czech New Wave, and I won't preface it, I won't queue it up. Daisies. Daisies and Riddles of the Sphinx. If you're free on August 8th, go to the Regent Street Cinema and watch Daisies. 
And later on, uh, there is a double bill of Hereditary in a Quiet Place at the Regent Street on August 16th. I might have to watch that, because I didn't yet see Hereditary in... Luke, uh, every time we record, tugs up my shirt. I get my notes back. I get <laughs> yeah. my notes out for Hereditary. And Quiet Place, did, have we spoken about Quiet Place on the podcast? I think we may have been on a hiatus at the time. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's a really decent horror. I, I enjoy it very much. It's definitely um, about something, which is like all of the best horror films should be. Hereditary mm. um, looks like it's going to be about something. Takes a turn. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'll say no more. Um, but yeah, it's not about the thing I thought it was going to be about, and for that reason, I was disappointed. Oh. Um, but I suppose that's not the that's not the fault of the film. I suppose that's the burden of my own expectations. But it it is one of the horror films of the year, um, and Quiet Place was really good fun, and uh, it's worth um, speaking of Childish Gambino, um, Donald Glover. It's worth watching some of the skits from the Donald Glover episode of Saturday Night Live which was out a few months ago, around the time of the release of The Quiet Place, and they do do a, a Quiet Place sketch, <laughs> running through the wheat fields, unable to make a sound, running from the monsters, can't say anything, can't make a sound, and then um, they, they're looking at their phones at what Kanye West is tweeting, and he's saying <laughs> unbelievable things, and then if <laughs> they're whispering and it's subtitled, and then suddenly he'll say something truly shocking, and one of them will just go, "Ah, oh, hell no!" And then <laughs> the monster will come and get him. It's very amusing. Yeah, I'd recommend it. Uh, so that will be the double bill for me. Um, get down there yourself, and I'll I'll buy you half a lager. Uh, now, pay attention because this concerns you. Friday, August twenty fourth, general release, Black Clansman by Spike Lee. Long-time listeners will remember that Chirac was one of our favourite films of last year, although it came out in 2016 in the States. We watched it January of 2017. Did you did you watch it in the end, Luke? I did not. Um, fellow OSS uh, presenter James Taylor, I think, did check it out. Um, so I need to get on this. Spike Lee, um, you know, the, the, can't remember a time when I didn't know who Spike Lee was, even if it was just mm. because of his associations with Nike and the adverts he did for them. He's always been to me among the coolest people on the planet, one of the most interesting directors, music videos, documentaries, uh, narrative fiction, and this one, Black Klansman, spelled with three Ks, all, all one word, because that's how Spike do with pictures like He Got Game and She Hate Me and The Sweet Blood mm-hmm. of Jesus. He's never one to shy away from the vernacular. This is John David Washington, who is Denzel's kid. He was briefly... It wasn't NFL, but he played American football and then dropped out of that. And I remember, like, I've watched DVD extras where Denzel is talking about how his son is a sportsman. It wasn't expected mm-hmm. that he'd go into acting, but I think uh, it's just a it's just a tough gig, isn't it, to try and be one of the best in a in an arena in which bone shattering injuries and the degradation on one's physicality in the NFL and associated uh, affiliated. Yeah, it takes its damn toll. So now John David Washington is an actor, and he's the lead in Black Klansman, ably assisted by Adam Driver. Of course, of course it's Adam Driver. Of course it's bloody Mm -hmm. Adam Driver. This is a man who came out of the military on an injury, having, I think he got thrown from a quad bike and bust his clavicle. Adam Driver's made fewer than 20 films. His debut was J. Edgar. Yeah. With Clint Eastwood, and since then, he's worked with Noah Baumbach, Steven Spielberg, the Coen Brothers... Uh, J.J. Yeah. Abrams, Jim Jarmusch, Scorsese on Silence, Soderbergh on Logan Lucky, which we talked about last time out, and now Spike Lee. Uh, 
And I remember in he's well, worked with all the guys, all the all the all the, all the great directors. This is fantastic. What's he yeah. going to do with the next forty years? You know, <laughs> who's <laughs> who's left? They're going to have to be digging up directors like Frank Capra and John Ford. They're going to have to insert Driver into their old films, put him in Casablanca by Curtis. It's just, <laughs> it's it's, and, and he deserves it. He's prodigiously talented, and I remember being confronted with him first time out in Girls and thinking he's weird looking. And then over time it became, he's really interesting. Then it became like, these are unusual feelings I'm feeling about that man's bare chest. and Because he's so vividly masculine. The first season of Girls, he always had his top off. And it was as if he did, shirts yeah. couldn't contain at his masculinity, kind of rampant creativity. And he doesn't even, yeah. he, it's not like he plays that bloke every time he's in a film either. Hey, you can tell. No, that's true. I love Adam Driver. And then it's like, he does all this shit and then... On the side, you know, in his spare time, he's Rilo Kiley in the Star Wars or Kylie Minogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's in Street Fighter as Cammy. Yeah, and you know that's it. that's his side hustle. Yeah, I do that. You know, every couple of years, I give him one of those. You know, just something for the fans. Wow. And in and in one of my favourite SNL skits, whilst <laughs> since we're on that theme, uh, it's Undercover Boss Star Killer Base. So he's playing Kylo Ren. <laughs> Uh, in Undercover Boss, right. and he's utterly fantastic in it. Dedicated to wiping out the Galactic Resistance. This week, Kylo is going undercover among Starkiller base personnel as Matt, a radar technician. You get so caught up in restoring the galaxy to its rightful state that you miss what's going on behind the scenes. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. <laughs> oh... I think I only watched that uh, But once. speaking of digging people up, there's 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 a, a cast member that I thought went off the radar mid two thousands. Is Topher Grace in this film? Yeah, uh, he might play David Duke. Because um, at the moment I'm on Netflix. For some reason, rewatching that seventy show, I stick it on a little bit for background wallpaper if I'm having my dinner, and then I'm going to get onto something really quick. Lex has been getting into it, enjoying it very much. Um, it's aged relatively well. It's, uh, you know, so, so, some the character stuff all holds up. Some of the jokes fall as flat as they did at the time. But um, the cast members are all really fun. I've but got... I did get to wondering what, 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 what Topher Grace was up to. Um, uh, so I was on his IMDb and I saw that this was coming up in 2018. I was, I was surprised to see him on, on this cast. I have affection for that 70s show. At the time, I thought it was, even in comparison to adult sitcoms, among the best cast sitcoms I've ever seen. Yeah. Because the the material is at times perfunctory, but specifically yeah. Grace and Kurtwood Smith and I, I beg your pardon, I always think it's Mary Kay Place and I'm not sure if it is. Is it Deborah Jo Rupp who plays Foreman's mother? And she was also in Friends around the same time as Phoebe's brother's ex-teacher, now wife. Yeah, you're right. That yeah, central yeah, yeah. triumvirate, a fantastic. And I liked that Mila was always fun in it, and Laura Prepon broke more than Jimmy Fallon, but that seemed to be okay. And when I when I say that the casting was bang on, like I, who really cares about Ashton Kutcher or Wilma Valderrama or Danny Masterson <laughs> in anything else? But they were really good in that. And I liked yeah. Topher, and I liked uh, Take Me Home Tonight by Michael Dowes. I think that's one that, that will wear well with time. It's um, mm-hmm. nostalgic late 80s party comedy, one of our One Crazy Night pictures. And I think that its reputation 
will only grow because so few people have seen it. It's the picture on which Chris Pratt met Anna Faris. Uh, and Topher's really good in that. I like him. Um, mm. Some people just don't get the breaks. It's not, it's not just that I love a comeback, but I look at Topher Grace's tremendous example, Luke. Well done for bringing him up, because I look at him and I think he had a little something at the beginning of this century and it hasn't happened for him. He's got another couple of decades Let's see what happens. Yeah. There will be a place for him, just like with James Taylor's favorite, one of his favorite shows, Early Edition. Kyle Chandler, I mean, he couldn't get arrested for several years yeah. at the beginning of this century. Early Edition, and then what was there? And popped up in King Kong, of all things. And mm. I, I distinctly remember being in the cinema and thinking, that's the guy from Early Edition. How did he get cast in this? <laughs> who, who remembers that show? You're telling me that Pete Jackson was watching that show while he's making Heavenly Creatures. <laughs> and, yeah. and he comes to America and, oh, I've only seen one show while I've been here, but I'll tell you what, it was a bloody good show. It was a little <laughs> thing called Early Edition. A cat delivers the... Can you believe this? A cat delivers the news the day before, and then the, the chap has to go out and solve the crime. Uh, I'd really love to do a, a big screen adaptation of it. Uh, and then it was um, Friday Night Lights that brought, and now Kyle Chandler. There was a period just a couple of years ago. He was in everything. He's a Zero Dark Thirty yeah. and Argo. <clears throat> if yeah. there was an ensemble picture and you needed someone, you, you needed the sixth build character to mm. have presence. Wolf yeah. of Wall Street, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. He was Super it's, Eight with Abrams, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It was pr- that was that was verging on leading man sort yeah. of material, but and yeah, it, it all came off. Uh, it, I think he got his foot in the door with King Kong. Maybe he got a new agent. We never know. This is, you know, ultimately, this is what me and Luke really wanted to do with the show. In 18 years' time, we'll be interviewing an ageing Kyle Chandler, and he'll tell us exactly how it was that all of this fell into yeah. place. Because, I mean, completely agree. I loved Friday Night Lights. It wasn't well watched. It had, uh, like Gilmore Girls, like Nashville, it had its, like Roswell as well, it had its committed fan base of. And this is. Uh, and, and, I, and I have a problem because I've been wanting to get into it for many years and um i went to get the dvd box set of the complete series for a mere 20 pounds in my local his master's voice and uh, you informed me that unfortunately the dvd home video release is without the music licensing and therefore uh a very different watch indeed yeah crying our shame because freaks and geeks paid for it when i it, the uh, yearbook edition came out like january 2004 when i was in san francisco and i was overjoyed because when you talk about it luke the uh, the walt merck notion of worldizing music yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. merch says yeah about about american graffiti specifically but yeah and freaks and geeks did that tremendously well with its contemporary music picks one of my favorites is no language in our lungs by xtc mm. for the uh, for the scene where uh, they're getting picked for baseball practice in in gym in PE class. Uh, that mm. complements it so well. And um, the mood of Friday Night Lights is perfectly established through the contemporary music soundtrack. And I was I was taken aback when it was coming out because uh, it is not a, a, a kind of it didn't pitch itself as a trendy show like Gilmore Girls or the OC, which would you know as would obviously have on it Phantom Planet or Rooney, and, and yet. Friday Night Lights had the Go Team and TV on the radio. And, yeah, it's a different experience if you're not watching it with those proper tracks. It loses a lot. One more to look out for. It's got two names at the moment, which is not usually a good sign for a cinema release film. (laughs) The Negotiator, which may also be renamed as Beirut, starring Rosamund Pike and John Hamm. Rosamund Pike I'm always impressed with. Any film I see her in, I quite like her in. Uh, This one's directed by Brad Anderson, who was acclaimed... 
at the beginning of the century for the indie rom-com Next Stop Wonderland with Philip Seymour Hoffman, thinking back, mm. I think it was Hope Davis, and The Machinist, the one where Christian Bale lost something absurd, like £60, got down to eight stone. And Session 9 is a very good ensemble indie horror by Brad Anderson. More recently, he did that one, The Call, with Halle Berry. Didn't watch mm. it. Didn't. I'm not much of a Halle Berry fan. Uh, but if it get if it actually does get its cinema release, the Negotiator, or Beirut as it may be known, is. Promising. I think it's the Negotiator in the UK and Beirut right. in the States. Uh, that, now that's, um, that's there's <laughs> another. Isn't there a Samuel L. Jackson Negotiator? Yeah, but don't film? say it. Maybe, I can't remember. Maybe this is what they're doing. So, to almost exactly twenty years ago, a film was released by F. Gary Gray, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Whisper It, Kevin Spacey called The Negotiator. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're going to do. Maybe over the next 10 years we'll see American Beauty. That No, there was never another film called American Beauty. Yeah, don't worry. Pay It Forward. There was never another film called Pay It Forward. Don't, I don't, LA Confidential. <laughs> no, th- this, is, this is the first LA Confidential that's ever been released. But Beirut could be, um, could be a winner on The ne- Negotiator here in the UK. Uh, Tony Gilroy's name is on it as writer, isn't he? And of yeah. course, um, we know him from Bourne. And most recently, as a Star Wars fan, I know him from his fingerprints are all over Rogue One. Um, are we allowed so, to say yeah. he basically saved it? Are we at that level of <laughs> disclosure I, yet? I think I think he's gone on the record as saying that he basically saved it. Yeah. Uh, there's an interview somewhere where uh, it came out a few months ago. He was interviewed and he said, yeah, I came in at the 11th hour. They were in a complete mess. The cut was awful. Uh, and I, I told them what the story really should be about. And it was about, what did he say? Um, sacrifice. Yeah. So he then rewrote the film, uh, extensively reshot, rumoured to be around 40% of it, put it back together again, and made it a film about sacrifice. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think, I think it's a, somewhere out there, there is the Gareth Edwards Rogue One cut, but I don't think we'll ever see it. I'm curious. But what we got was really good. And I think what you've spoken to there, I don't know if it comes with experience, because Gilroy's been around Hollywood for a long time, him and his brother, and 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 pointed yeah. to it and said, this film is about sacrifice. I can identify that that's what it should be about. And it's the same with, as we say, with Spielberg and Jurassic Park. This film is about a man and a woman. The woman is desirous of a family, and the man needs to... Uh, move towards that and to an yeah. extent grow up somewhat it's, evolve too yeah exa- exactly and you can you can point to that with jaws intergenerational conflict i see that as uh, three generations of american masculinity one who served mm. in the world war Two, one who probably was of age to serve in korea and another who could yeah. have been serving in vietnam but was an oceanographer and, a, and, a, and an academic and the tension between those generations that's what a lot of that film is about, and that's the easiest way to say it. And, you know, Watergate as well, that paranoia, not no longer trusting our um, uh, elected officials. Yes, there, yes there, there is a giant shark, but that's what the film is about. And it takes somebody like Spielberg or Gilroy or James Cameron, possibly John McTiernan at his best, to say, this is what the film is. There is a lot of bluster around here, but let's never lose sight of theme of this film. Through osmosis, they, they will understand its themes. It, it speaks to something when... Well, I'm belabouring the point now, but they employed who they did on Rogue One. It didn't quite work out. They brought in Gilroy. The same on Solo didn't quite work out. They brought in Howard. Tried something with mm. Jurassic Park and uh, the other Star Wars pictures, and they're kind of moving around 
players as well. Kasdan is still involved. You know, Kasdan, he started working with them. Body Heat was 81. I th- yeah, I, I think Raiders was the the first collaboration. Yeah. And then after that, Lucas did him a favour with Body Heat. I think Lucas asked him to do Empire. And uh, he said, we haven't even seen Raiders yet. And he <laughs> said, uh, he said uh, well, tell you what, I'll read it over the weekend and... Uh, just let you know, and uh, and he did. He he was he was desperate by that point to have him, that. have him write the Star Wars sequel. There's something to be said for one bloke making all the decisions to an extent. You know, like, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, just right. give me give me a day. I'll come <laughs> back to you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. like father, like son. You know, um, Caston's son who co-wrote uh, solo with him is now doing the shooting script apparently for Indy Five. So. You've got you've got a perfect cast and bookend. Yeah. It'll no doubt be Harrison Ford's final uh, indie picture. So um, that'll be quite the bookend to have Raiders, the first one, and then whatever the fifth one is, both written by two generations of castans. That's that's John this time, isn't it? It's John, yeah. And yeah. In, in the meantime, Jake makes the greatest comedy of the century, Walk Hard. I like Jake. <laughs> yeah, they're a, a good dynasty. Keep them around.